0: Hello again, I'm Drew McKenna and welcome to Grafted Branches, a podcast all about getting to know Jesus in the land and time he lived. With me today is my encouraging and wonderful wife, Deborah.
1: Thank you, honey. I really do love talking about Jesus in the context and culture of the time he lived. Truthfully, until I started to see and hear Jesus' teachings from a first century context, A lot of what I heard and read at church didn't always make sense. It was like having a really bad vision. You know, everything is blurred and distorted until you get your first pair of glasses. All of a sudden, the world is clearer, crisper, and an amazing place.
0: I have to agree. Uh, Besides the luxury of prescription glasses to clear up our vision, we also have electric lights that turn night into day which is either a blessing or a curse.
1: (laughs) Yes, a curse because in the old days, when the sun went down, most people went to bed. Now we have the opportunity to work longer. But the combination of the two technologies, glasses and electric lights, has truly been a blessing. Our world becomes more clear and real to us, which is how someone came up with the idiom, shed some light on the subject. So shed some light for us today what's our subject going to be
0: light that's what we're going to talk about i'll get right to it jesus taught this about his followers you are the light of the world a city set on a hill cannot be hidden the light is how we live out our lives when people claim to follow jesus they are the light the world sees
1: absolutely true Those who claim to be Christians are seen and looked at by others. But all too often, what people see really isn't a good representation of what followers of Jesus should be.
0: And why do you think this is?
1: It's simple. What is said isn't what is done. Rather than bringing order and peace to the chaos of the world, people's actions and behaviors do just the opposite. Because we don't even know the most basic instructions of God for life, we may illuminate the ugliness of humanity rather than His truth and love.
0: So what's the answer to this ugliness, and how can we change the light we illuminate?
1: This ugliness in life always starts with a lack of actually knowing God's instructions and then living them out. Even with good intentions, people tend to follow their own desires and lusts, and are attracted to leaders and teachers who support them. Now throw in personalities who have charisma, the ability to smoothly convince and attract people to themselves, we have a recipe for disaster. The gospel message and God's instructions are always a life-giver to those who hear them.
0: You know, instead, what humans do is this. We make up our own rules for the game of life and ignore what the creator of this game wrote down. Another way of putting it is this, we try to shortcut and cheat our way through life.
1: (laughs) I can think of a few modern idioms along the same theme like, stay ahead of the game.
0: Or, uh, at this stage of the game.
1: Or how about, this isn't just fun and games.
0: And the game is up.
1: Honestly, we are really bad at teaching the rules of the game, especially to the next generation. Even worse, we're really bad at hearing those rules. Instead, we would rather figure it out on our own, often with disastrous results. Wouldn't it be great if people could get to know the designer of the game and know how to play? Now that would be a game changer.
0: I have to emphasize the importance of knowing how to play the game. Typically, we focus on just one thing, myself and my need to win. We forget we aren't the designer of the game and there are other players to consider. If we want to do things in the correct way, we need to play the game by the designer's rules.
1: Since we've been bantering around idioms about the game of life, I have a great story told by one of my favorite teachers, David Foreman. It's a fun little story about two characters named Little Shoe and Little Hat. You might recognize these
0: names. Well, I do. They're the game pieces players can choose from from the very popular board game Monopoly. It's the real estate trading game made by Parker Brothers. There are several game pieces uh, you may choose to represent yourself like a thimble, my favorite, the race car, the little hat, or maybe the little shoe.
1: That's right. Imagine a discussion between little hat and and Little Shoe faithfully going around the Monopoly board for the umpteenth time. As Little Hat passes a hotel belonging to one of his opponents, he says to Little Shoe, Say, do you believe in Parker? Puzzled, Little Shoe looks at him. Little Hat explains, You know, look over there on the side of the board. It says in big black letters, Made by Parker Brothers. So do you believe in that? Do you believe in Parker? Little Shoe replies, yes, I suppose I do. How about you? So Little Hat responds, look, I've been around here a long time. Every week I pass go and I collect $200. I've been to Tennessee Avenue, St. James Place, and Boardwalk, you name it. I've seen it all. Heck, I've even been to jail. And I'll tell you something, I ain't never seen Parker. This whole time, I've just never bumped into him. So, no, I don't believe in Parker. I am a Parker atheist.
0: So what would you say to Little Hat?
1: I'd say, my Little Hat, you're looking for Parker in all the wrong places. Parker doesn't live on the board. He made the board.
0: You know, that's a great illustration. The maker of the system doesn't live inside that system. As a creator, you can interact with the system you made. You can make the rules by which it functions. You can decree that every piece collects $200 when passing Go, and that when a player picks the chance card and it says, go directly to jail, then yes, that player really has to go to jail. All that a creator can do, but the creator doesn't live on the board. That's not his natural place. The board is the environment put in place for the created, not the creator.
1: However, unlike Parker Brothers, God the creator is not cut off from his creation. He can interact closely with us. One of the ways he interacts with us is that he makes the rules of the game. Some of those rules are reflected in the way the environment is set up. We call these laws of physics, chemistry, and biology. Some of the rules are more like that little folded sheet of paper that comes with the Monopoly game. Those are the rules that govern how players should play the game, what they should do, what they should not do, and how they treat each other. We sometimes call these moral laws. All these rules are brought to us courtesy of the creator of the system.
0: It's not surprising that as time has passed, a popular game like Monopoly has led to a profusion of house rules (laughs) so widespread that very few people play the game according to its creator's instructions. As the official rules gradually disappeared from common play, other rules of our own making came to take their place.
1: Many of us learn Monopoly like we learn the rules of dodgeball or rock, paper, scissors. Did I say that wrong? Close enough. <laughs> By word of mouth, from those we play with, I would guess that most of us have probably never taken the time to study the rules written on that little folded sheet of paper that the creator of Monopoly included.
0: I imagine many of our listeners have bent a few Monopoly rules. These house rules, quote-unquote, make gameplay a lot more fun, but there's always a downside.
1: Yeah, like the one that earns the winner bitter glances from family and friends for the next few days.
0: You know, I remember it was normal to delete some of the original uh, rules and add new rules that made the game more exciting. Besides which, who really wants to get the rules out and read them? And I don't think I ever once thought about who these Parker brothers were and why they designed the game the way they did.
1: I remi- remember my family did the same. I didn't know that these house rules were not the rules the creator had intended. Why is it that people want to change, make changes to the game?
0: Well, there's many reasons. But really, it was to come up with a way to defeat the rest of the players. You know give us the ability to gang up on and crush the others. Not really the way Parker Brothers envisioned the game. It's the same thing in life. We wanna make it so we come out on top. Even when we know some of the rules, the right thing to do, we try to bend them or rebel against them in a way that benefits us. Eventually this bending, ignoring or adding to the rules, it becomes the norm often to the point we believe this is the way it was designed from the beginning.
1: Most people don't realize there are Monopoly Championship competitions held for outstanding players. But at these competitions, no house rules are allowed. You have to play by the creator's instructions. You know, the ones on the little folded sheet of paper.
0: And all this leads us to the subject of our podcast today. Why study?
1: Oh, I hear a great moan coming from our listeners. A popular excuse not to study is, we have thousands of years of church history. Our libraries are filled with commentaries, books on theology and church doctrines. There are even religious groups who tell their members not to study their Bibles themselves because they are in danger of misinterpreting it.
0: Most people don't realize God gave his instructions to the people, not to religious leaders. In fact, his first set of instructions, what we call the Ten Commandments, was spoken directly to the people and not some special select group of spiritual elites. God's instructions are not some sort of mystical work to be only interpreted by a few holy and enlightened men and then given down to the lowly masses.
1: (laughs) Yes, while pastors, teachers, and leaders hold a great responsibility for what they teach, each of us is responsible for how we choose to live our lives. We can't place blame on someone else. So, how can we get to know the desired plan for life?
0: Well, there's a couple of ways. First of all, we can learn by random trial and error, or some call it the School of Hard Knocks. Mm -hmm. We can just sit back and be told what to believe by some so-called spiritual expert, or just pick up that little folded piece of paper and read them for ourselves.
1: So, let's do a little inductive Bible study to help explain to our listeners why they should spend their valuable time in the Bible.
0: Uh, Before we get started, I have to ask you a question. Can you explain what inductive study is?
1: Sure. Inductive study is starting with the smallest parts and building to the big or main idea. Most do it backwards. They start with the big idea and try to find the details to support it.
0: Yeah, and, and one of my favorite teachers once said, Let's not interpret the scripture before observing it. Unquote.
1: That's right. Inductive study first involves spending time observing a text. It involves asking questions of a text, like, Where have I heard this before and does it remind me of an earlier story? It involves paying attention to the language and the words. Then research those words by looking at them in their original language to gain a more accurate meaning. It involves observing the context of a particular verse. The who, what, when, where, why, and how of the text to prevent distorting its meaning. Most importantly, it involves putting away all our presuppositions. In other words, take a step back and look at the scripture with fresh eyes.
0: I like to ask these questions. How do I relate to these texts? Is there a practical application in my daily life? And what effect will it make with my relationship with God and those around me? So let's do a short inductive study of a very popular Bible story, the Exodus. For generations, we've been told and have seen the story, God sending the plagues on Egypt, the drama between Moses and Pharaoh, and how the Hebrews left for the promised land. But I want to focus on one simple part of the story, the part where Moses confronts Pharaoh and proclaims, let my people go.
1: True, you're right. I can remember the movie, The Ten Commandments, with Charleston Heston playing Moses and Ewell Brenner as the pharaoh. When our generation thinks of Moses, the face of Charleston Heston comes to mind. So which part are we going to study? The plagues? The crossing of the Red Sea? There's so many things to look at.
0: Well, to keep this as simple and short as possible, we're going to look at the second confrontation between Moses and pharaoh. Starting with the small details, our focus today is when Moses has Aaron throw his staff at the feet of Pharaoh.
1: I like that one.
0: Uh, Before we read the text from Exodus chapter 7, it's important to see what modern media has taught us about what happened in the famous scene between Moses and Pharaoh when their staffs turned into snakes. In Cecil B. DeMille's Ten Commandments, Moses and Aaron approach Pharaoh Then Moses hands his staff to Aaron, who throws it down. In the animated Prince of Egypt, the scene doesn't even have Aaron in it. It's Moses' staff, which becomes a snake. You know, after checking video after video, I found the same thing. They throw down Moses' staff, and it becomes a snake.
1: So what does the text clearly say about this second confrontation between Moses and Pharaoh? In Exodus chapter 7... Verses 8 through
0: 13. Let me read it. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, When Pharaoh speaks to you, saying, Work a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron came to Pharaoh, and they did just as the Lord had commanded, and Aaron threw down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh also called for the wise men and the sorcerers, and they also, the magicians of Egypt, did the same with their secret arts, for each one threw down his staff, and they turned into serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Yet Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he did not listen to them, as the lord had said
1: it clearly says both moses and aaron are in front of pharaoh and the staff is aaron's not moses's god speaks to both moses and aaron and instructs them how to exchange how the exchange will go and it says they did just as the lord had commanded them they followed god's instructions
0: now let's look at this inductively what did God instruct them to do in front of Pharaoh, and what happened?
1: They were to take Aaron's staff, not Moses's, and throw it down in front of Pharaoh, and it would become a serpent.
0: And not to be outdone, Pharaoh called for his people to do the same, and their staffs also turned into serpents.
1: And then Aaron's serpent ate the other two. Now, you would think that Pharaoh would have been impressed, and yet the text tells us his heart was hardened, and he did not listen as the Lord had said.
0: Yes, the whole staff thing seems like an exercise in frustration. Everything happened according to what God had previously told and instructed Moses and Aaron. However, we need to dig a bit deeper and observe a few key details here. Deborah, is there a similar story about a staff and a serpent which happened before this?
1: Yes, there is. In Exodus chapter 4, Moses is concerned the Hebrew people won't believe that God sent him. So he asked God, If they will not believe me or listen to what I say, for they may say, The Lord has not appeared to you. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? And he said, "A staff." Then he said, "Throw it on the ground." So he threw it on the ground and it became a serpent, and Moses fled from it. But the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand and grasp it by the tail." So he stretched out his hand and he caught it, and it became a staff in his hand, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you.
0: So what are the similarities between the two passages?
1: There is a staff. It gets thrown down to the ground. It turns into a serpent for all present to observe.
0: So what are the contrasts?
1: In Exodus 4... It is Moses' staff that God tells Moses to throw down as a sign that the Hebrew people will listen. In Exodus 7, God tells Moses to have Aaron throw down his staff, but Pharaoh doesn't listen. Wow, I hadn't noticed that before. It seems like such a small detail. At this point, we need to ask ourselves, does it matter?
0: Let's bring out the magnifying glass and look even deeper. Most English translations of these texts say serpent. Movies and videos always show their staffs turning into snakes. There's just one problem with this. Something many uh, Bible commentaries and scholars have struggled with over the ages. It wasn't a snake.
1: What do you mean it wasn't a snake?
0: In the Exodus 4 account, God instructs Moses to throw down his staff to the ground, and it becomes a nahash, a Hebrew word clearly meaning a stake. And in Exodus 7, when it's Aaron's staff thrown in front of Pharaoh, it turns into a tanin, a Hebrew word used most commonly to mean a crocodile.
1: When Aaron's staff turns into a crocodile, Pharaoh's magician's staff do the same and Aaron's crocodile ate theirs. But as Pharaoh witnesses, his heart was hardened. He did not listen. We need to ask why. Why was the Hebrew word tenin translated into English as serpent instead of its actual meaning of crocodile? Were the translators trying to smooth out some of what they felt were the rough spots in the original text?
0: Uh, Instead, we should ask, why have the staffs become crocodiles and not snakes in Pharaoh's presence? It is really hard to make any sense of it, other than it's a whole lot easier to imagine a stick becoming a snake than a crocodile. It really doesn't have a perfect answer to why they use serpent. Over the millenniums, we just didn't know, so our commentators and scholars attempted to make sense of it, Uh, When it was discovered, though, how to accurately interpret Egyptian hieroglyphs, we finally had an answer to the question, Why crocodiles and not snakes?
1: It was the discovery of the Rosetta Stone that gave us the understanding of why God chose to turn Aaron's staff into a crocodile in Pharaoh's presence. Let me explain. The Rosetta Stone's importance lies in the fact that it contains three different scripts. The top section of the stone is in hieroglyphs, the midsection is written in Egyptian script, and Ancient Greek at the bottom. At the time of its discovery, nobody knew how to read Egyptian hieroglyphs, but the Ancient Greek section provided the key that finally cracked the code. Once the Rosetta Stone inscriptions were translated, the language and culture of ancient Egypt was suddenly open for understanding as never before. Today, almost any artifact inscribed in ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs can be translated thanks to the Rosetta Stone's discovery.
0: What Egypt- Egyptologists learn is an ancient Egyptian theology that when a person dies... Their heart is judged by weighing it against a feather. A pretty harsh measurement, by the way, and if the heart is found heavy, is immediately eaten by the Egyptian god Amit, the eater of hearts, the punisher of wrongdoers. The deceased would be destroyed and would not enter into paradise. This Egyptian god is depicted with, get this, the head of a crocodile.
1: We have to ask the question, to an ancient Egyptian, what makes a heart heavy? Some have reduced it to one simple idea. The person wasn't pure. However, to be pure in heart in Egyptian theology refers to how a person treats others in their lifetime. Did they knowingly lie, cheat, abuse, or make others suffer? These are some of the things which Weigh a heart down, making it heavy, causing it to fail in the judgment and to be eaten by the crocodile. When I first learned what the crocodile represented to ancient Egyptians, I shivered. What was the sign of the crocodile meant to teach Pharaoh, and how did he react?
0: God is clearly speaking to Pharaoh with Egyptian imagery that he understood By Aaron's staff becoming a crocodile and then eating Pharaoh's crocodiles, the imagery became very clear to Pharaoh. Because of the atrocities he had committed, Pharaoh's heart is heavy and judged.
1: Drew, let's take a look at Pharaoh's heavy or hard heart. Pharaoh has many changes of his mind during the course of the plagues. But the conundrum that has puzzled Christians for millennia is why would God suddenly harden Pharaoh's heart and make him say no once the Egyptian king finally says yes?
0: To answer that question, we need to take an inductive look at the words used to describe Pharaoh's heart. When speaking of his heart over the course of the plagues, it is typically described as being hard or hardened. The surprise is finding the Bible doesn't always use the same Hebrew word to characterize Pharaoh's heart. What most English speakers don't realize is the Bible switches between two different Hebrew verbs that in most cases have been translated into English as a hard heart. The first word is Hizuch Halev. The most literal way to translate those words Are strength of heart.
1: What is strength of heart? It seems like a good thing to have. Those who have strength of heart are valorous and heroic. Such people, we say, have vision and they are willing to see things through to the end despite difficulties along the way. They are, in a word, courageous.
0: Well, Hezuch Chalev indicates the strengthening of one's heart, the gaining of courage. When we read through the plagues, whenever we see God is the one who hardens Pharaoh's heart, he is Hezuch Chalev. He's adding strength of courage to him and what he believes in. The other verb the Bible uses to characterize uh, Pharaoh's change of mind is or Kibud Chalev which literally translates to the heavy heart, or more more colloquially, stubbornness. Whenever God calls Pharaoh's heart heavy, God is using language that the Egyptians understood. Pharaoh's heart is heavy and therefore judged.
1: Now we need to ask the question, Why would God give Pharaoh the strength of heart, helping helping him to see his vision through to the very end?
0: Think about it. What if Pharaoh wants to give in, not for moral or theological reasons, but simply due to panic or fear? Or, what if Pharaoh wants to give in because he thinks he's beaten and not because he's wrong? We might say he lacks the courage to pursue his vision. If this were how the Exodus story were to end, instead of demonstrating the truth of the Creator's existence, it would have demonstrated a little more than the limited ability of Egyptian's king.
1: When Pharaoh changes his mind, there are two critical questions we need to ask. Who is hardening Pharaoh's heart, God or Pharaoh? Is Pharaoh's heart becoming more courageous, Hizuk Halev, or more stubborn, Kibud Halev?
0: Well, chezu chalev and kibud chalev are opposites. Strength of heart is a good thing. An actual biological heart is a muscle, and when it's strong, it's flexible. A hard, stubborn, or heavy heart is a bad thing. It suggests calcification, the inability to change. Courage is the vision to pursue my goal. Stubbornness is the doom-inducing blindness to the fact that my goal is not achievable.
1: Drew, all of this changes our thinking about whether God ever deprived Pharaoh of free will at all. Taking advantage of the latest information on Egyptian theology helps us to understand the crocodile imagery. Using inductive study to look at the two different Hebrew words for hard heart helps the modern reader to better understand the Exodus story.
0: So what do we gain by looking at this densely packed story inductively? The first is our translations often don't tell us the entire story. Trying to make the text more readable, translators often smooth out the rough spots that don't really translate into English. But when it comes to the Bible, the rough spots are often where the clues to deeper layers of meaning are. Just as we saw with the snakes versus crocodiles and the hardening of Pharaoh's heart.
1: We all thought we knew the story. However, with fresh eyes and inductive study, we gain a deeper understanding and appreciation of what God is trying to teach. True, what did we learn from this short but densely packed story that applies to our lives today?
0: And here's what I like to see in it. It's easy to picture ourselves as slaves to the Pharaoh. It could be our employers, the government, or some evil despot in a foreign country. But how many times a day are we actually more like Pharaoh? Do we have a strong and stubborn heart, pushing and demanding our will in spite of the Creator's design for the world?
1: A strong and courageous heart can be a virtue. All through history, we can see people who do the right thing by remaining steadfast to their beliefs. At times, it is only by strength of heart that we can bring a great idea to life. A strong heart makes us persevere. It helps us stand our ground when everyone else says and is trying to tell us that we're wrong. Strength of heart can be a strong leadership quality, but it must be used with discernment. Qualities like vision, courage, grit, resilience, and persistence are the trademarks of a person with strengths of heart. It can be said that strength of heart is perseverance with purpose.
0: Yes, strength of heart is an outstanding character trait when used to benefit others. However, when used to benefit ourselves, as Pharaoh did, it has the ability to cause devastation in the lives of others. I think most of our listeners are surprised uh, the root word for being stubborn meant something heavy. Whether it be a heavy object or a stubborn person, you know what it takes? It takes a huge amount of force to move it. I find it interesting that on the Judgment Day in Egyptian uh, mythology, a person's heart is weighed to find out how stubborn the person was and what caused a person to have a heavy heart, how they treated others.
1: So how can we guard ourselves from having a stubborn heart? Like everything, we need to see these things in ourselves. And this is why we must study and learn God's instructions for life. Stubbornness says, I don't need to. Like Pharaoh, it says, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? I do not know the Lord, besides which I will not. Stubbornness, despite overwhelming evidence, strengthens itself and does not listen.
0: So learning God's instructions for life not only allows us to live as it is designed, it softens our strong and stubborn hearts. So what can learning's instructions be compared to? Quote, One day while sitting by a brook, a man noticed a steady trickle of water hitting a rock. It was only a drip, but it was constant. Drop after drop after drop. he observed something incredible. A hole had been carved out by that steady drip of water. Wondering how that could be, the man said to himself, If something as soft as water can carve a hole in solid rock, how much more so can words of God soften my hard heart? Don't be like Pharaoh, who, in spite of overwhelming evidence, refused to listen. Let God's words soften our hearts.
1: We would like to thank David Foreman for his deep dive into the Exodus and his wonderful insight into Pharaoh's heart. He is the author of the book, The Exodus You Almost Passed Over, that invites its readers to look at the Exodus story with fresh eyes.
0: Yes, it sure helps to look with fresh eyes every time we open our Bibles. You never know when you'll find something which will move our stubborn hearts.
1: I would like to encourage our listeners to take time to study the Creator's rules for the game on that little folded piece of paper. Look at those instructions today. They will guide you through the game of life. And with that note, we must go.
0: So until our next podcast, as we always say, get to know Him, what He taught, and then do it.